This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Climate Action Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Make sure to share the show if you like what you hear. My name is Carly my guest today is Joe Dodds. Joe is a president of the Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action and a Bega Valley Shire councillor. She is located outside of Tarthering, New South Wales. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Carly. It's good to be here. Awesome. Firstly, can you please let our listeners know about the Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action group? How did you all get together to form this group and how many of you are, are there currently? Yeah, so it was a pretty organic start. We, because the only thing that we really have in common was two things, I guess. We're all people who, who have been impacted by bushfires and we're all people who, we are all people who've been impacted by bushfires and we're also people who have made very clear in our own minds that link between the changes in bushfires and the changes in the climate as a result of climate change. So we all understand that the fires we experienced were influenced by climate change. And, and those two factors are the things that have joined us together. So we're not like uh, many of the other groups who come together because they share some sort of pre- professional affiliation or, or other cause. We're just purely together because of that. So it means we've got a really wide variety of people in, in our membership and we're, we're up around 140 or 50 members now. It's quite significant. And when you think how many people were impacted, particularly over that black, the so-called black summer, and we can talk about why it's so-called, um, yeah, it, it's pretty hard to find anyone. I think on the, the, the east coast of Australia or Tasmania or South Australia who wasn't in some way affected by those fires, whether it was standing, watching their house burn down, um, losing their business, losing a loved one, um, or seeing the place that they live in and love or holiday in or have travelled to in the past completely altered by these super hot, super fast fires. Mm, it really is. Um, I guess survivors is looking a bit different because, as you said, when half the country is experiencing the ill effects of climate change in a bushfire, it is uh, almost a bit surprising that the numbers in the group aren't a bit higher, you know? There's- yeah, look, there's an interesting um, impact. Well, there's a couple of things there. The first thing is that people impacted by bushfires are usually busy. If, if you've lost your home, you're, you're now in a world of pain and trying to deal with all of that. So I, so much, um, I have so much admiration for our members who are in that situation, who did lose their homes in the last, um, well, my neighbour Jan lost her home in um, 2018 in the Tarthra fire. And that was when we started. She's she's only just getting the slab down to rebuild, but she's been a staunch member of this group that whole time. And other members also in that situation who lost their homes more recently and, and have just swung straight into 
um, calling for a, a better response from governments to this problem. So, you know, to do that while you're trying to reestablish your own safety and accommodation and keep your family together and happy, um, yeah, some people, some people are seeing the urgency of this they don't to other people and other communities and they've just thrown themselves into that battle and uh, I mean I didn't lose my home so I'm I'm really fortunate in that but I did stand on a riverbank for hours watching thinking I was going to lose my home so I got the full I got the full fear experience without the aftermath um, but to then go through that that long period over 2019 20 and and, and the fires coming and going and surrounding you know, my neighbourhood again, east, not the east, the east was the only direction we didn't have fires because that's where the ocean is, but every other direction there was fires. So um, I think anyone who felt the anxiety about what was happening and even the people in, in Sydney who were breathing that smoke for months, <clears throat> they're people who were impacted by bushfires because, of course, there were more deaths uh, as a result of the smoke than there was as a result of the actual fires. And we, we need to start accounting for that. And I know the writer Paddy Manning's written a really um, in-depth book about what has happened in terms of the, the impact on human health. His book Body Count does account for those those people. So yeah, it's it's it, it's a vast number of people these days who could identify as affected by bushfires. But I think people are really careful and reluctant to to put their hand up because they don't feel like if they didn't lose their house, they don't feel like they're due any understanding or empathy or certainly any um, assistance because they can see other people who've lost everything. So there's a real, um, you know, people, which is a noble thing. People, people don't want to claim um, injury where there isn't any, but at the same time, we need to, we need to understand that the levels, particularly of anxiety and trauma that happened over that last uh bushfire season have have a long-term impact on people's lives whether they lost their homes or not absolutely and even you recounting just standing on the banks and seeing the fires come at you that sounds absolutely horrific you talking about that experience and having that you know visual and that that fear and that anxiety what happened after or you know quote unquote after the fires you know how did you get to be part of this group yeah, so I guess it, it. I started off just as we all do. We think the fire burns somewhere else and we think it's it's those people and those families who are impacted by those big catastrophes because we see that on the television. We see people in the street outside their house in their pyjamas and there's fire trucks and we think, oh, that's terrible that had happened to those people. But we, you know, it's a, we, should, we should be able to think these things forward a bit more, but I, like most people, probably didn't. I, I didn't expect to be the person evacuated from my house standing somewhere watching the fire come. And I wasn't at home, actually, when the fire began. So I, I was driving towards my home. And in that weird circumstance of seeing this huge plume of smoke, and then as I got closer to home, triangulating that and also looking on the fires near me app and realising that that was happening at the end of my road and that it was going towards my house and that this was now personal. So that was the first, the first kind of step from being remote to the catastrophe and remote to the impacts of climate change and then suddenly going, hey, hang on a minute, I'm standing right in the front of it. 
So what ended up, ha <coughs> ended up happening for us was that we ended up at the river in uh, Tathra. We ended up at the river in Tathra and stood there in the, at the boat ramp with a lot of other people who'd evacuated. And from there we could see our home about two kilometres away in the distance and we could see the smoke and eventually the flames as that fire then tore through Tathra. And we didn't realise at first that it had jumped the river and got to Tathra, but that, that's where <clears throat> most of the houses were lost. So 69 homes there. So having stood there and watched that and then understood how many of my friends and neighbours lost everything, having stood there and seen the, the people evacuating, the fear and the absolute chaos of that day, and then over that next week, every friend and neighbour that I have in this area, when we met, what everyone was saying to each other was, did you lose your home? Because so many of us did. It just became this greeting. Hi, Jan, are you okay? Did you lose your home? Because it, it was like 50-50. That's what it felt like. 69 homes out of, I don't know, it's like 400 or so in Tartar, I think. So the, the, the shockwave of that, of course, through, through everybody was a just astounding level of adrenaline that went on for months afterwards. It's quite, quite an experience, just the, the chemical ride after something like that. But it took me, I think, three or four days and the Prime Minister came and visited. That was Malcolm Turnbull at the time. And he, he, was, he was great with um, survivors in town that he met, friends of mine, and full of hugs and, and kind words. And, and I don't doubt for a minute that he, he meant that and that he, he was very empathetic with people. But he then went back to Canberra and made a statement in Parliament about Australia's always been the land of floods and fires and droughts and always was and always will be. And it took, again, another day for those words. The always was, always will be kind of just woke me up at about three in the morning and I sat up in bed and I started writing down what I thought about those words and what they meant to me. And what I heard from those words was we have complete empathy and we'll support you through this and we'll do all those things and we'll put you back together, but don't expect anything to change. And I just thought this, I mean, I've talked about climate change for 10 years before this and, you know, been in groups working on the issue, but in a kind of fun, friendly community way thinking, yeah, we'll, we'll tackle this future problem. And it was like this sudden realization. It's not in the future. It's right now. And I know that now because I've stood there and had a kind of wake up moment that nobody wants. And I turn to the politicians and they're not having that wake up moment. They're still thinking this is a future problem. They're still thinking it's too hard. They're still thinking, well, just as long as we patch people up afterwards, you know, it'll be all right. And I thought, it's not all right. This isn't all right with me. So I went into the forest behind my house because the fire didn't take my house, but it did burn into our property and it burnt places where I walk every day and it burnt the, the the places that I recognize and and love and go you know retreat into when I need space or time and and I went up there and it was just ash and black sticks not a sound there's no birds there's no mammals there's no insects no lizards and I stood there and I I read what I'd written you know, put my phone, propped it somewhere, read that to my phone, put that on Facebook because I was just so angry. And that that then got 
an extraordinary number of views, which was, you know, I thought I was just yelling at a tree in a forest, really, but sometimes <laughs> things aren't what they seem. And my dog was sitting next to me looking at me and I kept looking at him and then yelling at the phone a bit more. And then I thought, poor old dog, he thinks I'm really having a go at this tree. (laughs) (laughs) um, We got through that moment. And then after that, of course, because I'd said what everyone was thinking, it was one of those moments, it turned out, that many people then got in touch with me and said, we think the same thing. And we're so glad you said that because I want to say that. And out of that came um, a lot of, a lot of support from people and a lot of recognition of the the things that were said and we gathered as as a group out of that um out of that kind of that moment where it got said and other people have been saying this for a long time i'm in no way am i the first but people weren't sort of standing in the burnt remnants up to well maybe they had been but they weren't being heard that's the critical thing and that, that seemed to be the moment where that caught on that we need to have this discussion and we need it to have, to have it urgently. And I'm so glad that for me, I got to actually wake up before we then had that, that um, 2019, 2020 season that, that blew everything out of, out of the water and, and yet was predicted by all of the client, climate science that I've seen. So. Absolutely. And as you're saying that to me, it must have been another kind of kick to the face. Like, okay, so this is another just experience that the politicians know is coming, but, you know, oh, well. Yeah, it was. And that's what they met it with. Oh, it's another, you know, we're going to put you all back together and here's some more fire trucks. And and I'm going, yes, but I'm pretty sure if you ask every single one of those people, they didn't want to lose their house and get it replaced. They didn't want to lose their house and they didn't want the disruption to their life and they didn't want the destruction of you know, not everyone's like me, but I have my lifetime's writing in journals and creative writing. It's all just stored on paper in here. I, that's what I thought I would lose when the fire was coming for my house. And and everybody I know lost who lost their homes lost those things in their homes that tell their stories and mm. that hold their history. And, my, you know, my neighbour Jan, her son, had been given his grandfather's watch and that meant so much to him because his grandfather's long gone and he had this one memento of his grandfather and he lost that. He lost everything in that fire. Mm. And that, that experience of becoming unmoored from your own history and, and the things that make you, you in so many ways. I mean, you know, we can all say it's, it's, they're just things, and we should be a bit more Buddhist about it and let them go. But that's not how we live. We live expecting to put the same clothes on every day that we express ourselves with. And my friend Yani had lost all of her clothes. So she said for a long time, she just felt like she was dressed as someone else. She couldn't reach for that garment that, you know, on a cold day, I always go for that. And on a hot day, I know I can put that dress on and feel great. And no, it's all gone. The egg beater you use, no, that's gone. It's just this process of, readjusting your reality to what's no longer in the world and I during during the aftermath of our fire in Tarthra I walked up you know we did a lot of walking around in the burnt areas because it was such a an unusual and terrible landscape and I remember finding in in the forest here and there's we're on 50 acres of forest and that forest just extends right out to meet the national park and I was tramping away in there and in the middle of the forest I found this tiny fragment of paper that was completely burnt, but it was a piece of ash, essentially, 
but it had lifted into the, the, the wind and drifted down into the middle of the forest and I picked it up. It was so fragile, but it was, a, it was a piece out of someone's book. It was a page out of a book, a tiny fragment, and I could read the words on that page. And I thought that this, this fragment was inside a book that was inside a bookcase that was inside someone's lounge room that was in their house and it's now in the middle of a forest. This is the sort of redistribution of reality that is so hard to get your head around. And for me, it was a huge long process then of going, what does this mean? What does this mean? And what it meant was everything I'd thought about the future and what my future would be and what my niece and nephew's future would be and what the future of people in Spain would be and Zimbabwe is not what I thought it would be. Not anywhere is is the future that we imagined going to be what we thought it would be. It's going to be vastly different. And that was a huge, awful series of 18 months for me of waking up every night, spending hours thinking about that, trying to adjust, well, not trying to adjust, being forced to adjust my sense of reality to what it really is. And, you know, I've kind of, I feel like I've got somewhere now. I doubt that process is ever over because this is an extraordinary moment in history to to be alive and to understand these things. You make a really interesting point about how it's a series of loss and grieving that loss every day and we're jolted you know on a different time scale but you're very right it's a series and it's we're, we're living through it it's dynamic so we know that in a month's time we'll be grieving something else and losing something else or seeing something else in another part of the world and just adjusting like all the time yeah and and that plays into how governments are they're, they're still reacting to bushfires as if like the Tafra fire was just one event in our shire. So we had a whole shire around us helping. And then we had a whole of New South Wales and the government, the federal government was helping. Everybody was focusing, going, we can help you. We can put you back together. Before Jan's even started building a house, the next fires have come. So there are people who've, who've experienced that. And, and it's not just Tartha, of course. There were people who, who've been through the Black Saturday fires and the, the Canberra fires and... Um, fires in the Blue Mountains uh, through different periods who've rebuilt and rebuilt their lives only to lose them again. And now the fires are coming more frequently. Of course, people are thinking, well, why do I, why will I rebuild? What's the point? It's only going to burn down again. You know, how do I stay safe from this? How do I make anything static and permanent in this world if I'm going to be rolled over by this catastrophe even if I build my underground bunker home, you know, will the town be there when I come out? So, you know, where, again, where am I if the town's gone? And it, it makes decisions really difficult. Like my house isn't finished. We haven't finished building and we were installing this new staircase, which you can see behind me, but listeners can't. Um, that, that's, you know, it's a great thing to have a, a proper staircase in my home, but I was thinking, well, that's $8,000. Do I really want to spend that on a staircase that I'm expecting to burn down? You know, I, I, I really had to wrestle with that. What's, what am I doing here in this house? Am I actually responding correctly to the reality as I understand it now? You can only do that for so long before you go a bit nuts and you, you have to back away. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious that so many people are wrestling with this now and wrestling with it whilst living in a caravan on a burnt landscape full of weeds 
It's and we can't just let those people, each one of them, have to figure out how they cope with this without the government also. And more importantly, making sure that we've done everything possible we can to to prevent or reduce the danger of the next fires. And I guess that, you know, a call to action is really, really serendipitous timing as well because I've been following the movement very closely over the last few months and when you announced the um, court case against the New South Wales Environmental Protection Authority, I was very interested and, you know, it's the 7th of September now. Last week there was a recent victory in the courts where the EPA were taken to court by the group over their climate policy. So can you please tell us about this case, the experience and yeah. yeah, what what a what a place to get to so quickly. I fe- I felt like for us it was, um, and of course a court case takes a long time. So it's been I think over two years in mm. in um, getting resolved, and at each step I was very careful myself and I think all of our members to think oh, well we've got this far and that's great, but it might end here. And at every step, we cautioned ourselves like that because we didn't want to get our hopes up because this is quite a historic case and it changes, um, it, it hopefully changes a lot of uh, future work in the same space because we have finally found an Australian government to be um, responsible for specific climate policies. Um, and that, the win was extraordinary. The judgment came back within two weeks of the case ending, which no one thought likely because we were told a month to three months. So to hear that the judgment was coming back two weeks after two weeks, we we were really scared that meant that it was a a no-go that the the judge had decided. No, there was no case there. But it was quite the opposite. He decided that our case was very strong and that his recommendations were that the EPA must produce policies and objectives and guidelines that specifically address the emission of greenhouse gas emissions as uh, climate pollution. It's a form of pollution, which is damaging the climate, which is fueling all of these other events, including bushfires. So um, a very specific ruling that has implications for other authorities. And we we were kind of shell-shocked, thrilled, and we're shell-shocked, and we're not quite sure what will happen next. Obviously, the EPA could appeal if they choose to, um, but we're pretty confident that either way, it, this is a significant win. And it certainly brought a lot of hope and optimism to a lot of people who, and a lot of people say to me, what, what can I do? And why aren't the, the climate groups acting together? And why aren't people doing something about this? And I just keep saying, look, people are doing things. And if you want to help join a group, don't start a group unless, and I'm saying mm. that I started a group, but please don't start a group unless you found a niche that isn't covered and you can do something amazing with that. Otherwise, don't waste all of the incredible resources and learnings and wisdom of the groups that already exist because they are really well um, directed. They, and I've, cause I've talked to so many other groups about what their projects are and where they're heading and why. And, and there is such a um, honorable group of wise and educated and mostly young people who are working it with very ethical um, processes to improve the future for everybody. So I, anyone who, who wants to, to be active in the climate space should join a group. Like research, there's plenty of groups, you'll find one that works for you. And, and 
people can join us too. So we, we, you don't have to have lost your home because I didn't lose my home. But if you are concerned about what is happening in the climate space and the impact of bushfires, then we would welcome you as a supporter. Absolutely. Congratulations again. That just, I got chills when I read that hearing finding and I'm not even involved. So I just, yeah, big, my heart is full. What does this win mean in practical terms for you and the people in the group? Well, it, yeah, a moment of celebration. Um, uh, Knowing that we've made a difference is one of the, one of the factors that actually strengthens your mental health when you've been through the trauma and you're looking at the, the big picture, if you know you're working towards a better future, you it's, it's an extremely protective um, factor. So uh, we reveled in that. We will we'll revel in that for a long time, I suspect. Yeah. And, and that everyone can share that. And that this is just one more um, big rock going down into the foundation of us building a better future. And, there are many other big rocks slotting into place around this, including the, the recent action by the school kids to find um, the, uh, I think it was Susan Lee, having a duty of care. So there's just, and there's stuff going on in the Netherlands that I'm aware of. So we're, we're seeing the law step into the space of climate protection in a way that will make a difference, a big difference. And when you combine the power of that with the power of shareholder activism and um, just rational investment strategy from energy providers who are seeing that people want green energy and they don't want to be participating in a, an emissions scenario, um, I think with all of those um, directions at the same time, putting pressure on us all to change means that even if we have a recalcitrant federal government that isn't interested in in leading on this, that we can force the change from other directions. So, so that's what we'll be working on. We'll, we'll keep working on. We'll, we'll um, certainly be looking to reach out to more communities and more people in terms of our membership base and bringing people into a space where they can feel that they're contributing and that, that they matter and that their experiences matter, that's really important to us. So we'll, we'll go back to doing that great work and we'll also be talking to the amazing people at the Environmental Defender's Office, who, of course, were the ones who ran this case and won it, and saying, what else can we do? Well, that was actually my next question. What next for the group? <laughs> Yeah, we haven't. We 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 are in discussions about the particularities of that, but we haven't we haven't settled on a plan yet. Other than our our bigger ongoing plan, yeah, about membership and just getting it out there. And it's just such a bugger that COVID's locked us all down, and we can't be out in communities. Like I I would love to be heading up and down the coast here and talking to other communities that have that have been burned or breathed that smoke or felt the fear and saying, you know, what, what can we do? How can we, how can we have this conversation in a way that helps you and, and everybody else feel safer? But in terms of what we do legally, I guess we're still watching the ripples from that case go out and um, the EDOs produced some pretty interesting papers on the case and on the sort of policy that they expect the EPA 
may produce as a result. So that's the other thing we'll be watching with great interest to see what the EPA comes up with because the judge didn't specify in his orders. That's their job to do that. And he didn't specify a timeline. But it's my understanding if the EPA doesn't produce these documents, then they're in um, contempt of court. Interesting. So where can people go for information if they want to find out more? So, uh, yeah, we've got a website, Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action. Head over there and you can join us on the, the website. It's still new. We're, we're still um, building ourselves into a, a grown-up organisation because we, we run on a, a shoestring and we've only got, uh, well, I shouldn't say only, we've got a fantastic core team of between eight and ten people who do all the work. Uh, so, yeah, get on board. There's no obligation to, to turn up and, and be... Um, doing stuff on the ground if you just want to be a supporter who gets the newsletter and writes the odd letter to your MP that's fine or if you want to become a supporter and, and leap in boots and all that's awesome too so yeah we just encourage people to go and have a look at the website read a bit about us and decide if if we're the group for you and if not then go and find one of the other magnificent groups that that are working in the same space how else can people support the group just talk having that conversation about bushfire and aside from us trying to change the the conversation and take the politics out of that we we also need to be having a conversation about what it means that these fires are bigger and hotter and more dangerous and what it what it's done our understanding that our fire services can't be expected to protect people in their homes or protect properties, that people are going to have to have um, very advanced bushfire plans now to keep themselves safe. And that this, this danger extends to um, large suburban areas as well as rural areas. So I, I'm always, keen to to let people know that this is not just a regional and rural danger this is a danger particularly you know i thinking i'm from melbourne originally i'm i have family in warrandyte and eltham and and um st andrews so i know how at risk people are in the suburbs because it's a different thing in the suburbs trying to evacuate than it is here where i've got 10 people who live in my road and my dad's got you know fifty thousand people in his suburb so I, I guess there's, I'm trying to raise awareness about that, that big mindset that we're going to have to change about the risks attached to these new fires. Absolutely. Would you like to add anything else or does that feel? I was just going to um, add something about the, the notion of Black Summer and the New South Wales yeah, recovery head, Shane Fitzsimmons, raised this recently and said he, he does not like to use the term Black Summer because it implies that those fires over 2019-20 happened in summer, which is the traditional fire season, but they didn't. They happened from, I believe, July in 2019 were the first fires. So that's winter. And it went right through till I think there were still fires in March, which is autumn. So it was, it was all of the seasons. <laughs> Um, and that is absolutely the new normal. We, our fire here was in mid-March after quite a green summer. Um, and after our fire in 2018, we had a fire that occurred inland from here, uh, the Yankees Gap fire, and that burned for six weeks 
throughout winter while there was snow on the hills above it and it couldn't be extinguished. And, and I saw how much resources was thrown at that because it was the only fire that was burning um, possibly New South Wales at that point. We had 15 helicopters in play and there was upwards of 50 vehicles, national parks and all the rest of it. And they, they couldn't extinguish that fire for six weeks in winter. So that's what we're up against now. It's, it's not a summer thing and we need to start calling it what it is. So Black Summer needs a new name that actually... Like, like an almost perpetual fire season. It is absolutely that. And now that crosses over, of course, with the Northern Hemisphere. We yes. used to send our firefighters to California in, uh, in our winter and now we can't do that anymore. So we've effectively you know, halved the resources that we might have mm. available. Um, and the level of exhaustion that um, anyone in this space, whether they're working in emergency services or then the, the, the level of trauma in communities, and you'd be aware of this with the work you do, the, the, you know, with the pandemic on top of what's happened to people and that layering of trauma is going to mean we've got generations of people who are going to need um, ways through this to, to build their own resilience and stay safe and recover from these traumas. And, and it's going to be very hard to do that in what's coming to start looking now and planning. Absolutely. And really, how much resilience can one build or can be expected when there's cascading crises that actually never really end? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is what we're scared of is that rolling. Mm. It's like being in the surf and you've been mm. in a hold down and you know, you're, you're struggling for breath and finally you get your head up, you grab half a breath and the next wave hits you and then the next wave hits you to the point where, and we had people say this during the, the, the long season 2019-20, and I felt it. I didn't say it at first because I thought this is ridiculous. But then I talked to other people and I wasn't the only one thinking after weeks and weeks of this, just burn my house down. Just get it over mm -hmm. and done with. Just, just do it. I can't do this anymore. So that's the level that people get to. And it's happening with COVID mm -hmm. as well. People are starting to go, oh, look, just, I'm just going to go out. If I get COVID, I get COVID. We were yeah. terrified of it a while ago and now we're getting blase yeah. because we're so tired of of living with it and we're living mm. with fear and one way the through the fear stress. is just to have the yes yes yeah. yeah yeah so adrenaline can only get you so far that's right that's right Thank you so much for your time today, Joe. I really, really appreciate it on the back of, you know, the you know exciting end of such a long journey in the courts. Um, we've been speaking to Joe Dodds, President of Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action and a bigger Shire Councillor. We will have all the links to the group in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for your time today. A huge pleasure and thanks for getting in touch. Um, really great to talk to you. No worries. Thank you so much. My guests today are Larissa Kozloff and Brad Homewood from Extinction Rebellion Australia. Larissa is an activist with Extinction Rebellion Families Victoria and Brad is a climate and ecological activist with Extinction Rebellion Australia. Hi, Brad and Larissa. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Hey, Carly. Thanks for having us. So, big day. Firstly, the latest IPCC report was released last night with some expedited climate temperature threshold date estimations and climate tipping points. How are you both feeling today and what have you done to support your well-being after this news? Well, it's been such a mixed day. I knew it was coming and so I was kind of prepared for it. Um, 
but it's unusual situation because we're in lockdown at the moment. So there's a sort of pressure cooker environment anyhow. But I woke up to the amazing Canberra actions and that was sort of like the antidote for me. I was so impressed with what they did today. Burning a pram, you know, spray painting <laughs> Parliament House, spray painting, you know, duty of care kind of um, at the front of Parliament House and um, the PM's residence, the fence as well. And so that's carried me throughout the day and I've just been amazed at how much publicity that's gained throughout the day and how much traction and it felt like it's really given other people a bit of permission to be really bold in their statements. So, yeah, that's my takeout from today. But, yeah, very mixed feelings today. It's quite surreal actually. Well, look, I think it's one of those things if you've been following the climate debate close enough, you knew it was going to be bad and it just confirmed what most climate activists knew already. Um, you know, the Climate Crisis Advisory Group have been saying for some time now, there, not only is there no carbon budget left, but we're actually in the red. Um, so as far as Extinction Rebellion was concerned, it was already a, a climate emergency, um, and this is just confirmed. And now, you know, people just can't argue against it. We, we know we don't have to refer back to 2018. We've just got the IPCC, uh, red alert, climate emergency, it just doesn't get any more serious than that and we need to decarbonise the global o economy yesterday ASAP. So um, like Larissa, uh, I'm, I'm really, you know, the antidote today was the Canberra actions, really pumped. XR took it to Canberra, we took it to Parliament House, we took it to the Lodge and it was a truly iconic day, not only for XR but for the climate movement. Absolutely and it's interesting because you know I anticipated I had a lot of grief before I read the report last night and as you say it was expected no real shocks and then what was actually quite nice was seeing a lot of people I didn't expect post about it and get activated and then again the actions today was it's been quite an incredible day on the back of really hard news. Yeah I'm quite interested to see how it impacts people who aren't doing activism yeah, because there is this sort of tipping point emotionally where people just, you know, that turns you, you know, and so a lot of people haven't had that moment yet. But I th I'm interested to see whether this report sort of moves people in that direction because I think once you hit that tipping point, there's, it's a point of no return. And Absolutely. so, yeah, I'm wondering, um, you know, are, are more and more people going to get involved in nonviolent direct action as a result? I'm hoping so. They're always welcome to. My highlight, I have to say, was Senator Lydia Thorpe today um, I don't know if you've seen it there's an amazing clip of her where um, parliament is sort of calling upon her not to have slogan slogans in the background she's working remotely and she had a um, climate emergency sign and her response is just to yell out climate emergency climate emergency it's absolutely <laughs> stunning you know it was that was another highlight today you know amazing moment yeah. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? You know, if we, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, it doesn't mean that evil doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. she's certainly amazing with disruption. Mm -hmm. So, Brad, XR have been super busy planning targeted strategies before this upcoming federal election. Can you tell me a little bit about the federal MPs campaign? Yeah, uh, look, there is a federal MPs campaign amongst other campaigns at the moment. Uh, and the first cab off the rank was Josh Frydenberg's office last Thursday. There was a group of people that were supposed to be in Canberra for, for the what's been over a week of actions now, and they couldn't make it because of lockdown. So we uh, we improvised on the run. Uh, we thought perfect opportunity to, to kick that campaign off. Uh, we basically blockaded Josh's office for six hours on Thursday. Uh, we had two people up on the roof. Uh, 
and dropped a big banner with duty of care. The whole duty of care thing's been a perverted gift to the climate movement. We've got like grandmothers and grandfathers who have been involved with XR, but not, you know, uh, not really wanted to get involved in direct action. Um, and that's just pushed them over the edge. They've realised, you know, the government have literally said, we do not care about the children and future generations. We're going to fight the federal court decision. Um, Justice Bromberg's findings that the, that the government does have a duty of care. They're going to fight that. And, and it's just activated a lot of people and given them permission to take that next step. Uh, and that was a hugely successful day. We got a lot, we got a lot of media. We upset all the right people. We upset Alan Jones, Andrew Bolt, Neil Mitchell, uh, and even the treasurer had a crack at us. Um, so we're, we're delighted with that. Um, and, and there's more to come. People want to get involved. Just, you know, go to Extinction Rebellion Victoria Facebook page, sign up, and and we welcome you with with open arms. Absolutely. And it's kind of, it's quite unprovocative, isn't it? It's saying, it's pushing the issue. You're saying that you don't have a duty of care. Say it to us again plainly. Explain it to all of us like we're five years old. And a lot of people, I think the veil is being lifted, that the government is showing that they actually just don't give a crap. Mm. As, yeah. as one as one of our rebels in Canberra said, Leslie, she said, if a government doesn't have a duty of care, what is the point of government, really? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And so, again, with the federal campaign strategy, and we spoke a bit about the significant Canberra actions that have happened today, can you tell me a bit more about ones that are, you know, being planned in the future and why these matter? What is XR hoping to achieve with these campaigns? Well, the actions we've seen uh, over the last week and a bit in Canberra, uh, they're on the back of the actions in May when when a group of rebels when joined in Canberra from all over the country and locked the, the car compound of the pollies on budget day and, and did a, a number of really successful actions at the trucks and all sorts of blockades. Um, so they're building on that. But what we're actually building to is in October. So from October the 16th to the 30th, uh, there'll be two weeks of actions in Canberra. Uh, it'll be under the banner of Reclaim Our Future. We're trying to be as inclusive as possible to get as many climate and ecological activists up there as we can. Of course, there'll be a very strong XR contingent um, and we're going to push it as hard as we can and we're going to try to embarrass the federal government in the lead up to the COP negotiations. It'll be the last sitting before COP. So, um, yeah, if you can, if you've got the means, um, please get up there and join us and, and, and let's do this proper. 100%. And I like how you focus on the inclusivity because, again, you know, no one can escape climate crisis. What are the, some of the areas that people can be involved in? Should they be kind of on the fence about, you know, joining direct action for the first time? Oh, look, we start with the big ask. Um, we want people to get involved in non-violent direct action and civil disobedience, um, but you don't have to get involved in in the what we call the red action. So the more people involved in the red actions, the better. Uh, we want to overwhelm the justice system in Canberra if we can. Uh, we've already got a healthy number, number of people signed up to do that, but it's really important people understand there are a lot of support roles. For every red role, there's, there's at least 10 to 20 support roles, and most people are just as important and equally valued. Um, so, you know, their outreach, arrestee support, uh, social media, arts, uh, et cetera. So there's plenty that people can do. If you don't want to get arrested, that's fine, but please come along. We need all the help we can get. And if you can't make it and you have the means, please give generously because uh, rebelling doesn't come cheap. Um, there's, there's accommodation, there's fines, there's court costs. Uh, so we need all the help we can get on every possible front. 
So Larissa, I understand that there's been significant growth in people joining XR families. Can you tell us a bit about this group and what you all do together? Sure. So XR Families has been around for a while. And in fact, they participated in the first rebellion. Um, And I didn't participate in that rebellion because I wasn't part of Extinction Rebellion then. But it went really quiet during COVID, understandably, last year. And we had sort of people who um, were running running XR Families. Um, Just a few things had happened. Some people had moved and sadly someone had got sick. And so it just went really quiet. And then last rebellion, my husband and I, Nat, were thinking that that was something that was really missing. So we'd take our little six-year-old along to XR stuff and he was the only kid around. Um, but he absolutely loved it, of course, and it's a really important part of the rebellion. So we've tried to kickstart it by getting in touch with anyone involved prior and starting to build that community. But And we had a meeting with people, whoever was interested, and what we decided was that, you know, there's so many groups around online for parents and families doing a lot of communication about climate and a lot of sharing of resources, but those groups aren't doing nonviolent direct action. So we decided to have a focus with this group that actually we would really, we're all really time poor. So we would just specialize in direct action. And so we've, we've gathered a really great group and it's growing every day. There's people joining and putting up their hand and we're working towards our first action in September on Father's Day. So that'll be a um, pretty dramatic action where we've got a few um, fathers and, and anyone else who wants to join who put their hand up for arrestable um, roles. And then we've also got like a camp that's child friendly with, you know, where we can take care of, look after kids and people who have working with children checks can look after the kids. And um, so we're trying to, yeah, um, invite parents into this group. I really understand the process of getting of being new to activism. I've been through that process myself and especially what does it mean when, you, when you're a parent as well. So you're going through all the climate grief of having a child, wrapping your head around the science, trying to do your job, trying to hold everything together, but at the same time life is really unbearable once you pass that tipping point of emotionally understanding that we're headed for absolute catastrophe and that our children will bear the brunt of it. It's a really difficult thing to sort of grapple with and activism really is the antidote so we want to be a group that you know um, is completely inclusive in the broad sense of families it's to it's anyone who's sort of looking after someone basically or you know completely inclusive and working towards direct action so yeah because we we need a lot of help so I'm finding with families people can do a little bit but if everyone does a little bit it builds up to a big action so Sometimes um, parents or are really kind of feel bad that they can't do everything or they think they have to solve the whole problem of the climate and then they trip up and then they burn out and then you never see them again. So what we want <laughs> is like lots of people doing small things, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I can write a press release in the next two weeks or I can mind some kids for two hours. So so that's how we're, um, yeah, we look, we're going to find out how it, how it works on sun, on September 5th. That's a fantastic day for an action. And I also imagine there's a nice element of peer support. There's an element of peer support when you're entering a climate group anyway, but I imagine that would be compounded when you're, you know, in a caring role for someone who's younger or more vulnerable than you. And that must be really nice and, yeah, have a nice connection as well. Yeah, I mean, when Nat and I kind of clued on to the climate and read all the science, we literally sat on the couch crying, you know, and our boy was asleep in bed and we were just crying, you know, mm-hmm. thinking, what do we do? This is, I mean, it was mind-blowing. And I know that there are thousands of parents out there entering that space. 
And so we jumped into activism. We were really lucky to join XR Westside, a very experienced active group where we sort of learned how to do activism and all about Extinction Rebellion. And that model was perfect because it's nonviolent, it's inclusive, it has a culture of no shaming and blaming. It works incredibly well. It knows exactly what it wants to do to achieve. And so that model was really efficient, kind of like a well-oiled machine for people who are juggling a lot of responsibilities. And I have to say, it has improved every aspect of our family life. It's improved, you know, because we don't sweat the small stuff anymore. We're involved Mm. in something bigger. Our kid is sort of senses the goodness of it, I think. And it's also exiles filled with really great people. So he's sort of attracted to it as well. So anything that involves XR tends to go really well within the family. So I think it's given more than it's taken from us Mm. effort-wise. Yeah, beautiful. A really nice family kind of activity as well, you know, going out and having fun. (laughs) And psychologically, I mean, useful ask us, you know, in in five or ten years, every child, you know, from his, you know, all of the children will be saying to their parents, did you know? And did you do anything? And so I know that we can comfortably answer that we we tried everything we could and we participated. In fact, we won't have to tell him because he, he's seen he's already seeing us do that. He already mm. understands that there's this thing that our family does. We don't just look after ourselves, that we have a responsibility to others. We love nature. And so it's already embedded in his um, psychology and his mental health. So I hope that holds him in good stead later on as well. It will. I also believe that you're involved in the international group XR Muslims. Can you please tell me a bit about this? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's hard in XR because there's so many specialist groups that become really interesting. But as a sideline, um, Nat and I are also both Muslims. And so um, people have so many different reasons for doing activism. And ours definitely has a spiritual basis as well um, in terms of, yeah, what are we called to do in our lives, you know, what's really important and, and that sort of thing. So that was a little bit of a missing piece of the puzzle for us, but we found this international community that has people across 23 different countries and, and that's been really amazing too. We're not super involved in the activist side of that group because we, we are focused on other things, but we join in these networking meetings about once a month. We stay up till about 1 a.m. because it's, it's at a time when everyone can join XR Uganda, XR UK. It's, it's, um, it's just complete United Nations gathering, basically. And um, what's been amazing about that is learning and hearing from people doing frontline climate activism. So it's one thing for me to wave a flag and sit down on the road and that. But these are people who lose their friends in their activism. They're murdered. Uh, the other month someone was murdered and they were, people were really upset about that. They're people who have given up their jobs to protect, you know, particular types of trees and to just devote themselves to. There's a massive campaign in Uganda to save the shea nut tree and the person leading that just gave up their teaching job and that's all they do. And so it's kind of amazing because you've got people sitting on Zoom, you know, right across the world, people doing food relief programs, you know, because people are already being hit by those things. So that's been a really amazing sort of, education but we also we also have the spiritual context of faith that's discussed all the time and they're doing amazing work with mosques and um you know there's there's really different sort of mission statements around that and sometimes people will sing you know um the quran before we start and so that's been really amazing too and i know there's a lot of different specialized sort of groups like that 
That's unreal. It's so incredible to hear that, you know, you can have that real international community as well and that XR really is trying to diversify and, you know, have a truly inclusive movement for all. Yeah, and I think what's great is, you know, you can pick up campaigns like the XR Uganda one about she and nut tree, XR Muslims did fundraising and that raised like, you know, I think a thousand pounds and that allowed like hundreds of trees to be planted. Mm. And I think there's 1,200 seedlings you know, from that fundraising that are now being nurtured. It takes nine months for those trees to go in the ground. So they need to be nurtured as seedlings for nine months. And so there's like 1,200 trees that this time next year will be going the ground. And so those activists feel really seen and supported because often they're just doing this work feeling that the Western world has no idea, no interest. So it's sort of a very unifying um, thing. That's amazing. It's really good news story. Thank you for sharing that. That's okay. <laughs> Brad, I know that there's been a lot of focus from XR on NAB lending over $7 billion to fossil fuels in the last five years. They've got a critical policy announcement due in September this year. What does the XR campaign look like to attempt to influence ethical investing? Uh, look, to be honest, Larissa has been more heavily involved with that than I have, but it is a really great campaign for entry-level activism. So, you know, it's you can get involved and just do some outreach or do some chalking out the front, or if you want to be a little bit cheeky, you can put some posters up on the building, etc. But we've also been occupying branches when we haven't been in lockdown. So just turning up, you know, half an hour, an hour before close and just going in, occupying the branch and just singing, you know, making our presence known and doing outreach with customers um, until the police turn up, basically. So it's been, a, it's been an orange roll, with, you know, yeah, sure. So that's been an amazing campaign. It's a national campaign. So it's involved chalking out the front of branches, stickering, visiting bank managers in person, which I've I did, I've done with someone um, for a couple of weeks. So it was very interesting. Calling CEOs. So um, we collected all the numbers of the top people involved in decision making. So NAB basically will bring out a report in um, September that oil and gas policy. They're the biggest funders of fossil fuel out of all the bank banks at the moment they're funding some really nasty projects and they've loaned seven billion dollars in the last five years to companies like santos doing fracking and it's it's and the borough pub project so it's really nasty and the decision they make will be really crucial in terms of how other banks act um and and you know it's just outrageous really because you go to those banks and there's acknowledgement of country signs in the windows but they're they're supporting, like, you know, fracking on without consent on Indigenous land. It's outrageous. Um, and then they sort of greenwash it with, like, pictures of turtles and stuff. So um, this it's been, like, a really multifaceted campaign. As Brad said, there's lots of different ways of participating. I know people who were calling, like, you know, people on the board last week, so finding their numbers. And um, there was also a really amazing presentation that NAB staff could jump in on, a Zoom presentation with climate experts, um, so, yeah, happening on lots of different levels. Um, but the chalk, it was, it's been amazing visiting bank managers. I've, I've sort of done that um, surprise visit. It's been very polite, but just letting them know why their branches have been chalked. And, yeah, just um, talking to them about the power they do have within those organisations as well in terms of filling out survey, surveys or telling people higher up about, you know, how they feel about climate issues. So it's been very successful, I think. We'll wait and we'll find out in September. 
But we did have a bit of inside information that the um, one of the people higher up had said that the campaign's been very successful and that there are some people on the board who want to argue against, you know, supporting fossil fuels and actually that activism helps them argue that point, but time will tell. Excellent. So where would you both like to see XR go from here and what are the opportunities that you would like to see for future strategies? Uh, look, I think, um, you know, XR's classic theory of change is for mass mobilisation. Uh, for people who aren't aware that the social sciences tell us that if you can mobilise 3% of the population in non-violent direct action, you've got a good chance of forcing the government's hand. And if you can mobilise 3.5%, it's never failed to force the government's hand. Now, obviously, COVID's thrown a massive spanner in the works with mass mobilisation. And, you know, activism across the board has been hit really hard since COVID turned up. Uh, so what we've had to do is really escalate our tactics. And I think we've seen a classic example of that in Canberra. There is a debate within XR about you know, whether you stick to classic street tactics or more targeted tactics. Um, we seem to be striking the right balance between the two. Um, you know, the public do love the targeted actions. They're not, they're not as warm on the, on the street actions and interrupting people's daily lives, but that, that's very effective as well. So we, we've got to walk that fine line, keep a balance. Um, you know, we hope to mass mobilise one day, but until we do, we clearly need to uh, escalate our tactics. One thing you realise when you, when you do get involved in climate and ecological activism is, you know, uh, if you're a member of the settler colonial class, as most of us are, um, we're very late to this fight. Um, and, and the first people of this country have been fighting this same fight since the initial invasion of 1788. Um, and it's very humbling when, when you truly understand that. Um, so there is no climate and ecological justice without justice for the first people of this country. Um, and, and it's just really important. That's one of the things when you get involved, it's such a steep learning curve and you get so much growth from understanding that, I think. So when people are keen about XR and they want to join in, how do they do it? Pick a local group. So there's local groups and there's organisational groups as well. So people sort of find their calling. It might be a local group or they think, I'm amazing with media or I can write or I love the arts or I'm really good with regen. There's all these areas that need work and you can join like a working group, like a little community like a team. So if you sign up to, I think it's osrebellion.earth, you'll put the link, but that's the best way. And then you get a newsletter. Come to a meeting, meet some people, go to an action and get a feel for it. Everyone's on their activist journey. You know, most of us started out going to rallies and signing petitions and writing letters and doing all that and then realising that that just wasn't getting the job done as well-meaning as it is. And, you know, there's a lot of people in NGOs have done a lot of good work and, we really respect those people, but the reality is it, it, it hasn't got us to where we need to be. Uh, so XR is the next logical step. Um, and I think once people emotionally process where we're at with the climate and ecological emergency, um, I think they come to realise that. And, you know, there's a lot of good people in XR that will welcome you with open arms and, and uh, yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, Brad and Larissa, and I look forward to joining you in action very soon. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carly. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the show. That was Joe Dodds, the president from Bushfires for Climate Action, Brad Homewood and Larissa Kozloff from Extinction Rebellion Victoria. Catch you next week.